Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you need a Bible, there are some under the chairs in front of you. And you'll see 2 Samuel 11 on page 327 in those Bibles. Uh, we're going to walk step by step through it. So I encourage you to open it, keep it open. Because we'll, we'll be dealing with a pretty big chunk of Scripture a little bit at a time. And so you're going to want to have it open. I want to start with this quote. And it's one that I've seen attributed to dozens of different people. So I don't know who to cite. I will tell you it's not me though. So I'll put that out there anyways. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. It's just a truism about sin. Something we think will be immediately pleasurable or if there's consequences, they're going to be small. And yet so often it pulls us in farther than we ever wanted to go. It's hard to extract ourselves. And there's a cost that we didn't anticipate that often ends up being far more than we want to pay. Nowhere in Scripture is this better illustrated than what we're about to study in this passage of David and Bathsheba. And I'll warn you ahead of time, this is a, this is a heavy section. If the goal of preaching is for the tone of the sermon to match the tone of the passage, this will not be a light passage, I'll tell you that. Why does the Bible give us such a wealth of information about this one incident? It gives us two chapters long chapters. It gives us two full psalms. It explores the temptation, the failing, the cover-up, the rippling effects, the inner turmoil, the confrontation, confession, consequences in great detail. Why? Why does it give us such detail and so much real estate in Scripture? And I think the reason is because this is your life, and this is my life. Maybe not the exact same sins, but the same patterns that we see here, and the same warning that can come from this. This passage, it's like a, it's like a lighthouse. You think of a lighthouse warning ships about rocks that they could crash against. It is a warning, but a lighthouse is also a place of hope, isn't it? The ship lost at sea could see this and find hope. And we will see both warning and hope in this passage. On Thursday, I was at our campus building, uh, middle of ISU's campus, and I neglected to eat breakfast before I went there, and I was hungry, so I walked across the street to the rendezvous building, this building right in the middle of campus, and they have meals and stuff there, and as I was getting some food, I went to the tray that has like the utensils and stuff in it, and there was a sticker there, and some of you students might have seen this, the sticker says, you are not alone. In different, in different circumstances, that's kind of ominous, right? Like, is somebody watching me? <laughs> what do you mean I'm not alone? But that's not the intention there. They had smaller letters underneath it directing students to, like, the counseling center if they had needs, recognizing that students, but all of us, can often feel alone, not just relationally. Maybe a, they have in mind a you know, freshman far from home for the first time and a drizzly November morning feeling alone socially, but also we have a tendency to feel alone in our experiences, in our temptations, like nobody else gets it. This passage assures us that we are not alone, in particular with the experience of getting pulled into this downward cycle of destructive sin and then God's grace to rescue us. We're going to 
follow an outline that really looks at four relationships here. With David at the center of each one, but as David interacts with four different individuals. Beginning with David and Bathsheba. Start reading now in verses 1 to 5. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. David didn't go out to battle. This might just be a a description, not that he's doing anything wrong. It might have just been the occasion. It was siege warfare, so it would have lasted perhaps more than a year. He wasn't expected perhaps to be there that whole time as king. So it could just be a, a statement of this occasion. However, if we get all the way through 11 and 12, which we won't get to the very end, but the end of chapter 12, as sort of a bookend to it, David does go to this battle, and he does Uh, leave the palace and go there, which is perhaps an indication that it's meant to tell us David was neglecting some duties by not doing so. But either way, it's this occasion that opened up what happened next. David's on his roof. He notices Bathsheba. And at this point, he could have stopped. He hadn't done anything wrong. He's walking around on his roof. It's his own roof. He can do that. She hadn't done anything wrong, but he noticed her. And he could have stopped. He could have went back inside. He could have asked the royal carpenters to build a beautiful trellis with some vines on it that blocks this view, right? There's a lot that he could have done. He hadn't done anything wrong yet. It's the equivalent of wandering around on the internet later at night and something pops up. We can't always avoid things like that. But what we can avoid is what happens next, can't stop temptation from coming our way, but we can stop what happens next. But he did not. He inquired about her. He learned her name. She's a person, not just a body. He learns her name. He learns her father's name. We know that name from later in 2 Samuel. is one of David's elite bodyguards. That was her dad. He learns that she's married to one of his soldiers, but none of that stops him. He's not... Carrying out these acts in ignorance is what this is telling us. He sent for her, he took her, he lay with her, and he returned her. And notice it is just written so fast. Walter Brueggemann, he comments on it this way. I'm going to read you this paragraph. It says, the action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There is no adornment to the action. The woman then gets some verbs. She returned. She conceived. The action is so stark. There is nothing but action. There's no conversation. There's no hint of caring, of affection, of love. Only lust. David does not call her by name, does not even speak to her in what's recorded. That's what he means. At the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. 
The verb that finally counts is conceived. And the telling verb is he took her. It's quick. But what goes from here is how it ripples out. And it ripples out now to this next relationship, which is her husband, Uriah. Let's start reading now. Verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Then Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camped in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. David comes up with this plan to cover up and conceal what he's done. He thinks, if I can just have Uriah come back, it will take care of itself. But Uriah comes back, and it does not take care of itself because he's too honorable. And so David gets him drunk, and it still does not take care of itself. The irony here that we're intended to see is that Uriah is more honorable than David. Uriah, five times in here, he's called Uriah the Hittite. Why? Well, Hittite, there was a people group that were in the land. They were non-Jewish people group. And so here we have this contrast between the honorable Hittite and David, the Lord's chosen servant, a man after his own heart, who is acting dishonorably all throughout. And Uriah only serves to contrast that more and more by his refusal to even kind of relax when his fellow soldiers are out there in battle. So the circle expands more. And the next person is brought in this next relationship. Now it's, now it's Joab that David is interacting with. Let's pick up there in verse 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. 
The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. Uriah carries the letter of his own betrayal, probably speaking again to his character that David knew that Uriah wouldn't so much as open this. Took the letter of his own betrayal. Joab is now pulled in to this expanding circle that began with David, and now Joab is brought into it in this act of of sin. Joab noticed that his word, after he carries this out, as he passes it on to the messenger to David, he knows that David, in ordinary circumstances, would be upset at the way they conduct this war. He says, if David's mad, if he says, why do you get so close to the wall... This is what you should say, because Joab knows and David knows that this is reckless. And did you notice? It's not just Uriah that dies. It says some other soldiers fell as well. So this spiraling out, it's not just David now, it's Joab brought into it. And the damage is not just Uriah, although of course that'd be enough, but now it's these other soldiers as well that aren't even named. This spirals out. Reminds me of a, a quote I saw recently from gal named Jen Wilkins, she put it this way, personal sins always result in collateral suffering. Personal sin, something that starts with you, she says always, and that's perhaps not too strong, always results in collateral suffering. It, It affects others. We see it here, it's David, but then it's Uriah, and it's these other soldiers, and Joab, who is brought into this deceit. But you can see it in other situations. Imagine a high school student who cheats on a test. And so because of that, they get caught. They lose their athletic eligibility. And their team that was counting on them loses a game. That would be a small example. Imagine an angry man's bitter gossip overheard by his children over years. And this child, these children become embittered against you know, the local church or the neighbors or whoever it is that dad is always talking about. That collateral suffering spreads out. Imagine an emotional affair at work that leads to a physical affair after work. Leads to three and five-year-old children spending Christmas without mom or dad. It spreads in a way that the suffering is not contained. David, notice here, he kind of wants to put himself off as as compassionate and magnanimous. He, He gives this philosophical statement Uh, The sword devours one as well as another. Is it the sword that's devouring one as well as another? Or is it David? It's David. It's his act. It's his choice that has brought this about, even in placing Uriah there. And yet he tries to come across as philosophical and kind-hearted. It's just a show. Just like when he takes Bathsheba in to marry her. You can imagine some watching this thinking, Oh, look at our king. There's a widow now who lost her husband in battle and he's bringing her into the home. What a a great guy. But it's just a show. 
Dale Ralph Davis, he tells a story of this from World War II, where a field marshal named Rommel had been involved in a plot to try to assassinate Hitler, and he'd gotten caught. And so they were going to execute him, but they gave him the option of taking a poison pill, and they would keep this under wraps, probably because they didn't want the embarrassment of this, and they would pretend that he was a war hero that died of some emergency, and they would give a pension to his wife, and, and that's what he did. He took his own life. Hitler himself sent a letter to his wife praising his courage, and Hitler coming across then as this magnanimous leader. But of course, it's a sham. And Davis goes on to say, we expect such oppression and sham in Nazidom. Like, that doesn't surprise you to hear that Hitler did that, right? We're like, of course he does. That's, Hitler is who we think of when we think of a bad guy, right? But, but this is Israel. This, this is David. This is God's chosen man, the man after God's own heart. And, and he not only does this act, he conceals it. And he tries to come across as the good guy. It reminds us that this kingdom is not safe in David's hand. And I think that's what one of the things we're meant to see. The kingdom had been promised in chapter 7 to extend all through his inheritance. But it's not safe with David. One man calls it Thugsville. When will it be safe? Only when Jesus is on the throne. Oh, he's the only one that can rule without harming ever those underneath him. And this is a small contrast that points ahead to that. At least nine months pass as this baby's growing and then is born. What would that have been like for David? What would those nine months? I want you to honestly try to picture that. We, we read and it's quick. It's a few verses. But it was nine months. What was going on in David's heart and his soul? What was his experience? It does not tell us. But... We do learn, I think, in another place. Psalm 32 is written by David. It doesn't specifically mention this incident, but it sure seems to be about this incident. And I want to point out a few things from Psalm 32. David writing here, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day. When I kept silent, which is what he did for nine months, he kept silent uh, until, we're going to see, it's going to turn here in a moment. But he kept silent. And it says, my body was wasting away. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away. It's with the fever heat of summer. You can feel this conviction. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you know what that's like. Where you've done something you know is wrong. But you're not yet ready to admit it. Maybe because you don't want the consequences. Maybe because you don't want to give it up. And yet you feel this growing weight where it's like your vitality is being drained away. One author, he puts this in first person storm, kind of, kind of fictionalizing it, but imagine what this might have been like for David. It says, in the weeks and months that followed, outwardly everything appeared normal. I married Bathsheba. She was expecting a baby. The kingdom was prospering. I went to meetings, I gave speeches, I sat on my throne giving judgments, keeping as busy as a king can be, doing my utmost to put the whole debacle out of my mind, but day and night God's hand was heavy upon me. Inwardly I felt like my bones were wasting away, my strength was dried up like a stream in the July desert. 
I'd go to the temple but couldn't pray. I'd open the Torah but couldn't concentrate to read it. That guilt, that conviction. And again, maybe you've experienced that. Or you know you're doing wrong and you, you know you ought to turn but you don't yet. But you still go through the motions. You show up at Bible study. You show up at church. You sing with people around you. You open your Bibles. And yet, there's like this vitality that's wasting away. There's an emptiness inside that's described by David here. I want to tell you that that sense of guilt, that sense of conviction is a gift. As long as it's true guilt. If it's a false guilt, if it's something put on you from unrealistic expectations, unbiblical expectations, we don't want that. But if it is a true guilt, a true conviction, friends, that is a gift. The problem is when that guilt no longer comes. That conviction no longer comes. You do the same thing that earlier would have brought guilt, and it does not. That's an indication of a conscience that has been seared. That's when you should be concerned. Jen Wilkin, again, she, she puts it this way. I don't think I have it up here. She says, there are only two ways to stop feeling guilty about sin. Repent or repeat. Repent or repeat. We repent, we turn from it, and we'll see, by God's grace, that with David here in a moment. But also, if we just continue to repeat it, our conscience gets dulled. And we don't feel bad about it anymore. It doesn't mean that it's no longer wrong. It just means that we've dulled our conscience. And friends, that's the scary place. If this is where this chapter, this story ended, man, that'd be, that'd be tough, wouldn't it? But, but it doesn't. It doesn't. This gets us into this fourth relationship. I want to start reading this now. The very end of chapter 11, then on into chapter 12. We won't be able to cover all of chapter 12, but we'll hit some of the key parts. The end of verse 27. But the thing that David has done had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. 27 verses in, this is the first reference to the Lord. This is the first time where it's pointing out what had just been events. And now we get God's evaluation of it. He says, this is wrong. What will the Lord do? Come in and he take the kingdom from David? Will he strike him down? He could. We'll see what he does. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he, brought, which he bought and nourished. They grew up together with him and his children. They would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. 
have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sins. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also that is born to you shall surely die. The Lord was silent up to this point, but not sightless. Fully aware of all that was unfolding. David may have thought that he was concealing this, and yet... Proverbs 5.21, as we get into a section that covers David and the Lord, this is fourth relationship. Proverbs 5.21, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all his paths. It's likely that servants knew what was going on. It's likely that some others did. Joab certainly did. But whoever else David thought he was hiding it from, he was not hiding it from the Lord. We never can. But what does the Lord do? He sends Nathan. Probably the sweetest words in this passage, actually. Rather than bringing the hammer down, he sends Nathan to David. The Lord pursues. Without these words, we would have a bleak and hopeless story. But the Lord pursues. God's grace pursues. If you wander and God brings heavy conviction upon you, that is his grace. And that is something to be thankful for. If you wander and somebody comes into your life and warns you, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's friends, maybe it's your spouse, and they warn you and you feel guilty, that is God's grace rescuing you. If you wander and God allows consequences to come your way and they're painful and sharp, but they open your eyes, that is God's grace, and that is so good. It might be unpleasant, but it's what we need. Nathan wisely avoided a frontal assault. He didn't just come in and label David as an adulterer and a murderer, although those things were true. He gives this parable. And it's this parable with this parallel story that convicts him. Alexander White says it this way. Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan had a sword. It was there. And so David, by his own words, he ends up condemning himself. It's realistic enough that David doesn't realize that that's not a real story. And yet, when Nathan pivots, he says, you are the man. I'll tell you guys, as I was reviewing this last night, I spent way too much time thinking about how do I say that sentence? You, David, are the man. You you are the man. You are the one in this story. That's the line that finally awakens David's eyes. The Lord goes on to to pile on. David, look at all this grace that I gave you. In fact, it's a rehearsal of much that was said in chapter 7. I gave you this kingdom. I I, I placed you on the throne. I gave you the kingdom of Judah and Israel. I, I, I. But David, you have despised the Lord. He, He does describe the consequences that come. David's house would be troubled. That really summarizes the rest of 2 Samuel. His house is troubled. Two of his sons die in violent death. 
But David, look at verse 13. I want to make sure you see this. David repents. He says very simply, I have sinned against the Lord. He owns it. He says, I've done this. And it's sin. It's not a mistake. It's not an error of judgment. It's not I but she. It's I. I I have sinned. And it's against the Lord. He accepted the tragic consequences that come. This is another place, though, that Psalms give us more insight. We, we get a little bit here, and it's beautiful, but Psalm 51 presses in. And this one, we know very specifically it's about this incident. Psalm 51, at the beginning, says it's a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So if you're wondering what was going on in David's inner life after this, in the midst of this, it tells us. He says, Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice he doesn't say, be gracious to me. It was just an error of judgment. Be gracious to me. It was only one woman. I know guys that have had dozens. He does not do any of that. He points to God's character. He says, according to your loving kindness, God, because this is who you are, be gracious. Be gracious. He goes on. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Remember, he felt this heaviness, this vitality drained away. And he says, wash it away. For I know my transgressions. My sin is every before me. Notice that line. Can you imagine what that was like for those nine months? Every time he went on the roof of his house. Did you think about this? Every time he saw Bathsheba's growing belly. Every time he saw the other soldiers. Every time he got a letter from Joab. Every time he saw the servants that he had used to bring her to the house, could not get away from this. He goes on and he says, against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We might ask there, really, is it only against the Lord? What about Uriah? Seems like he kind of sinned against him, right? What about these other soldiers? Of course, there was a horizontal aspect, but he recognizes that it was first a vertical sin. Everything that came out was a sin against the Lord first and foremost. And so it's an expression of that. He points in verse 5 to the sin that's not just an act, but it's in his own nature. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Not that his mother sinned, but that sin nature has been there since his beginning came out in this action. And then he says, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. What does God want from David? What does he want from us when we sin? Maybe not in the same exact way, but the same pattern. What does he want? Truth. What do we do instead? Conceal. Hide. Relabel. Blame. But he wants truth. He wants us to say like David, I have sinned. And I'm not going to justify it. I'm not going to blame others. I'm going I'm to own this. And what do we get? Mercy. Forgiveness. As we wrap up here, I want to apply some of this. This is a reminder to us that it's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. Once this ball got rolling, you can imagine how it was hard to stop. Uh, Likewise, if you know something is tempting, avoid that. 
rather than place yourself in it and, and think, I'll, I'll just stop before it reaches a certain point. Maybe that's moving the computer into the living room. Maybe it's not taking your phone into your bedroom at night. Maybe it's recognizing that when you go to a bar, you drink and you drink and you drink, and then it shatters others around you. And so you say, I'm just going to stay away from this situation. What is it for you that you need to just avoid that temptation than try to stop it after it gets going? David could have turned around in those first couple of verses, walked off the roof. End of story. Second, letter B, forgiveness does not eliminate damage. David was forgiven. The Lord says it in this passage in chapter 12. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, explore it in great and beautiful detail. But Uriah didn't spring back to life, did he? Neither did the other soldiers. It didn't eliminate the damage even though he's forgiven. And it's a good reminder. That's where this serves as like a lighthouse warning you about rocks that are there. Can the Lord forgive whatever mess you find yourself in? Yes. Might there be painful consequences still? Yes. Yes. And the Lord would spare you from that. And then third, this comes from a song that we often sing here. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. David's sins pile up and they spread out. They are many. But it's not too great for God's mercy. I don't know what your story is. My guess is it doesn't include premeditated, calculated murder. Although it could, honestly. My guess is it's something that we would say is less than that. And yet, yet God forgives that. Can he not forgive whatever it is in your life? He can. He can. Come. Come to him. 1 Peter 2.25 reminds us, you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is one of the ways that as our good shepherd, he warns us of danger and he warns us to come. Let's pray.